It's a real honor to welcome science writer Donna Stoff, who will discuss this book, The Squid Empire, The Rise and Fall of Cephalopods. And she, afterwards, you can buy a copy and have it autographed, and it's a wonderful, wonderful book. She fell in love with cephalopods at an early age, when she was 10 years old, growing up in Los Angeles. And uh, she had seen one, and uh, her father and she decided, why not buy one, and we'll have it at home. So they bought one. Um, these don't live very long, but it, it had its entire lifetime there. And they got a second one, and um, I guess that was those were the only two. But she went off to college, got her bachelor's degree at UC Santa Barbara, her PhD from Stanford, doing most of her research at the Hopkins Marine Station in Monterey. It's an amazing book, and um, it's been named one of the best science books of 2017 by NPR Science Friday, and uh, it's in its third printing, so I highly recommend it. Please join me in welcoming Donna Stoff. Thank you so much for having me tonight. It's a real honor. And it's just such a joy to have so many people in the audience. I'm going to make sure that my phone is turned off, too. <laughs> Nothing worse than interrupting yourself. And uh, since, since Jerry did tell the story of my very first pet octopus, um, I feel I have to share a little bit more about that. Because my father is actually in the audience today. And since some of you may be parents as well, can you just imagine your 10-year-old coming home one day and saying, I think we should have a pet octopus in the house. Um, and you know, this has happened in the past, and it happened in my family. And um, I just want to give him some credit for helping me to make that happen for us. Thank you, Dad. <laughs> uh, and what it, what it turned into is a lifetime of loving these animals and all of their relations, living and extinct. Uh, although I have spent most of my research career studying the living cephalopods, squid and octopuses, um, what I have gotten more and more interested in in recent years is the deep ancestry of this group, which is why I've started telling people that cephalopods are the new dinosaurs. Um, because we do still have dinosaurs around today. We have birds, um, and they're cool. But when you consider all of the creatures that came before that led up to the birds that we have today, they just become that much cooler. And I feel that it's the same way with cephalopods, that we get a real richness in appreciation for the ones that we have when we find out what happened before. Um, and frankly, the extinct cephalopods are even cooler than the extinct dinosaurs. So I'm going to evangelize a little bit here tonight. Uh, and I'm going to start off um, because cephalopod itself is a word that many of us don't necessarily use on a daily basis, unless you're me. Um, and cephalopods are octopus, squid, cuttlefish, nautilus, these animals that we think of when we maybe see them in an aquarium, see them in Finding Nemo. And the things that make us recognize them are usually tentacles. Um, their ability to camouflage, uh, they're often very well known for their changing skin color. Of course, Hank the octopus in Finding Dory made it famous on the big screen, being able to match anything in their environment. And this picture here is of a cuttlefish matching its background with extraordinary precision, both the color and the texture and the shape of the sand grains behind it. 
Um, other things that we associate with cephalopods tend to be ink. Uh, they can jet ink. Uh, they can use it to escape from predators. They can use it to confuse their prey. Um, they can even make ink clouds that are shaped kind of like a squid or an octopus and deceive their predators that way. Uh, so the ink is a pretty cool skill. And then, of course, possibly our favorite thing about them is their intelligence. The fact that you look at an octopus and it looks back at you. And octopuses and squid use their color-changing skin not only to camouflage themselves, but to communicate with each other, to give signals back and forth, possibly even to engage in a language. It's this advanced cognitive ability, which we're just not expecting to see in something that's related to snails and slugs, that I think really captures our attention and, for many of us, our affection for these animals. So this is what makes a cephalopod today. And what shocked me to learn, and I still think is amazing, is that all of these incredible adaptations are fairly recent. They're not what originally made a cephalopod. There we go. The, I'll just dance every time I need to advance slides. Uh, what made cephalopods, the origins of this group in deep time, was not intelligence, it was not tentacles, it was not fantastic skin, it was a shell, specifically a buoyant shell. And this shell is not from an extinct cephalopod, this is from a living cephalopod called a nautilus, a chambered nautilus, and it's representative of the shells that all cephalopods used to have way, way back when this group first evolved, they evolved from animals like snails that all had external shells. And so the first cephalopods all had external shells as well. And their great innovation, the great evolutionary change that made cephalopods their own group was the buoyancy of this shell. A snail shell has no buoyancy. It's just filled with the animal's body. It may be a little bit of fluid. Uh, but this is the story of what happened when that shell became something really extraordinary. And we have to go way back in time to see it happen. A long, long time before people, of course, but also a long, long time before dinosaurs. Um, dinosaurs are actually fairly recent innovations as well. So if you shuffle them off to the side, um, and then you say way back before anything even lived on land, no plants of any kind on land, back 500 million years ago to a time called the Cambrian Explosion, when all of the first animals were evolving and showing up in the fossil record, and everything interesting was happening in the ocean. Nothing at all was on land except for a few little algal cells, and I apologize to any phycologists in the audience who study and love algae. Uh, they're cool, but they're not macroscopic, um, so we're going to dive into the ocean and see what life was like down there. Nearly everything was crawling on the seafloor, or burrowing in it, or scuttling over it, or maybe shuffling on a little bit. And most of those things were trilobites. Um, this is understandably known as the age of the trilobites. There were a few little creatures sort of hopping up off of the seafloor from time to time, some little bits of algae and larger bits of algae growing, but really nothing up in the water column. This was long before fish and sharks, long before turtles, marine reptiles anything. So there were no large animals up in the water column. Everything was crawling around on the seafloor, including this little snail-like creature. And this little snail-like creature, who was small enough to sit very comfortably in the palm of your hand, was the ancestor of all of the cephalopods. And we know that because of its incredible shell. So we're going to zoom in now on that shell and have a look first over here 
at letter A. This is showing you a cross-section of that little animal where you can see its foot and its little antennae, kind of like a snail's antennae, and its body reaching up into its shell. And these lines here at the top are showing us that the shell is growing chambers. It's sealing off chambers inside of itself. And those empty chambers, initially filled with fluid, with surrounding salt water, with the animal's own fluids, became filled with gas by a really bizarre and fascinating process. So a little tube of flesh from the animal reaches up through all of those chambers that are sealed off. And that tube of flesh has blood in it. And that blood has a certain amount of saltiness to it. And the animal can make it saltier. And when the blood gets saltier, the fluid here, which is going to be less salty, gets pulled into it through osmosis. And when that happens, the empty space left behind in the chambers becomes full of gas. The gas is pulled out of the blood. These animals have dissolved gas in their bloods, just like we do when we breathe in oxygen and breathe out carbon dioxide. Those gases are dissolved in our bloodstream. And just like us, they have dissolved gases in their bloodstream that could then move into the chambers. And once the chambers got emptied of fluid and filled with gas, it became like a balloon to lift these animals up off of the seafloor. And this was the crucial innovation of cephalopods. Once they had buoyant shells, they could get really, really big. Cephalopods literally rose above the competition. Um, and this uh, scuba diver is you know, 500 million years out of place, but is there to show you the scale that was reached by these early cephalopods. These early straight-shelled cephalopods grew to astounding sizes. And the reason they were able get to get so big is because of that buoyant shell. For something like a snail or a clam, the bigger it gets, the heavier and more awkward its shell becomes. So a very large clam or a very large snail can't really move anywhere. Giant clams are basically glued in place. Um, and even then, they can't get very big. But for a cephalopod like this, the bigger the shell gets, the more buoyant it is. So it just offsets its own weight as it grows. And these animals got astoundingly large. And they were these first large animals up in the water column, swimming around, moving, and just treating the entire seafloor covered with trilobites like a buffet. They were the only guests at the buffet, and it was just a beautiful time for cephalopods. Um, they've been thought of as super predators, in fact, because we have to remember that this is before any other large animals evolved. They were literally the first large animals on the planet. Um, and they were certainly the first large swimming animals on the planet. And presumably, they were just chowing down on this mess of trilobites everywhere. But there is a small problem with this scenario, and that is that nobody has ever found mouth parts of these ancient cephalopods. Now, modern cephalopods have beaks, hard, sharp beaks like a bird's beak or an eagle's beak, really, that can bite through their prey. And if these creatures didn't have beaks like that, how in the world were they going to be cracking through the carapace of a trilobite? Nobody knows. It's possible that they did have beaks, and we have not found those fossils yet, because fossils from this long ago are difficult to find. And it's possible that we've just been unlucky, and someday we will find those mouth parts. It's possible they had different kinds of mouth parts that didn't fossilize well, but were still able to tackle a trilobite. And it's also possible that they were just super scavengers. And they hung around above the buffet until everything got nice and dead. And then they took their pick of all of the dead pieces, which would have done just fine for them as well. And in fact, echoes 
the situation of the super predator that many of us are even more familiar with, good old Tyrannosaurus rex, who many of us learned in our early childhood was a horrific super predator that killed everything in its path and had absolutely no qualms about murdering left and right uh, in a very anthropomorphic vision of animals needing to eat. Um, but it's been found out that Tyrannosaurus rex was also an opportunistic scavenger. Any large animal that eats meat is going to be very happy to eat meat that is already dead, that it does not have to go out and kill for itself. And so it's very likely that these ancient sea monsters, these ancient gigantic cephalopods, were probably, in this sense, just like T-Rex. They were both predators and scavengers, whatever they needed to do to get what they had to survive. And for millions of years, they did it really, really well. They were top dog. There was nobody else in the ocean. This is what I think of as the reign of the cephalopods. And like all good things, it had to come to an end. In this case, it was fish. Fish brought the great reign of cephalopods to an end when they evolved because they could swim really fast. They were much more efficient swimmers. They did not have a long, awkward shell. I mean, can you imagine turning in that thing, in the turning radius? And what if you bonk into a piece of kelp and then you have to turn the other way? And it's just not, not a good scene. Um, and fish can turn much more efficiently. They have these horrific jaws that are really good at crushing shells. Um, and basically, shells are just not a good idea anymore, even if they're buoyant. So cephalopods were faced with a conundrum. Their beautiful, buoyant shells that had made them top dog are now, by comparison, making them slow, making them awkward, making it impossible for them to maneuver and get away from these fishy predators, as well as very difficult to compete with those fishy predators for the same food that they're trying to eat. Shells can be broken and grabbed. So cephalopods, fortunately for us, did not go extinct. Um, they evolved, and they evolved in two very different directions. The first one was to coil up the shell. As this gentleman is demonstrating for us, um, any time that you have something long and awkward that might be easily grabbed or might get caught on a piece of kelp, and uh, it's getting in your way, you can coil it up. And then it gets out of your way, and you become very hydrodynamic. I'm sure he's very hydrodynamic. Um, and cephalopods, uh, two main groups of them, did exactly this. These two groups were called nautiloids and ammonoids. And they evolved from straight shells to slightly coiled to tightly coiled shells. And this development happening separately in these two different groups seems to have been extremely successful. A coiled shell is much more maneuverable. It doesn't get caught on things. It's a lot more difficult for a predator to grab a hold of and crack, and it's more resilient to, to being broken. And these groups did extraordinarily well for an extraordinarily long time. The ammonoids in particular became so diverse and abundant. They had coils in a plane and coils in a tube and tight coils and loose coils and coils around other coils and just, just coils upon coils upon coils. And they became so abundant and so diverse that paleontologists actually use them to tell time. If you find a specific ammonoid species in a specific rock, there's so many different ammonoid species that that one can tell you exactly how old the rock is as they diversified and speciated so quickly. They're kind of like little geologic fingerprints and geologic timestamps. Uh, but there was another group of cephalopods that evolution took in a different direction, and that was hiding the shell, internalizing it, getting it out of the way so it's not causing such a problem. This is not a cephalopod, by the way. 
Anybody know what this is? A cowrie, yes. Um, this is a kind of snail that we have around today that is just demonstrating the possibility of internalizing your shell over time. Cowries have external shells, but they spend a great deal of their life with their body wrapped around that shell. And that's why cowrie shells are so beautifully polished is because they're actually internal shells for a great deal of the animal's life. And it's thought that this may be how cephalopods got their start. We don't know because we can't see in fossils really what their behavior was like, but we can see in fossils that pretty soon these early coleoids, cephalopods with internal shells, kept the same complexity of shell. This shell here, although it's somewhat crushed in the fossil, would have had chambers, would have been buoyant, would have had the same complexity of, of, uh, of creating that buoyancy that we discussed, but it's surrounded by flesh. You can see the imprint here of the animal's skin, the animal's body going all the way around the shell. And then, of course, its arms as well with these very cool hooks on them. And this was the beginning of the coleoids. And this seems to have been also fairly successful. This is another fossil coleoid where you can see that the shell is still very solid. This is actually a part of the internal shell that is sometimes called a thunderstone um, that's so solid, it's actually, the, the rest of the shell is almost too buoyant. This solid part offsets the buoyant part of the shell to keep the animal balanced in the water. And these, uh, these buoyant parts, or, or sorry, these very solid parts of the shell fossilize in enormous abundance. So kind of like the ammonoids, we know that these animals were very successful for a long time because of the abundance of the fossils that we've found. Um, so coleoids were doing just fine for themselves. And we even imagine that they probably looked a little bit like modern squid. So this is a, an artistic reconstruction of what we think these early coleoids looked like. They would have had um, arms. And uh, so we can go back to our cephalopod checklist and see how far we've gotten along the route towards a modern cephalopod. Um, they definitely had tentacles. Um, they almost certainly had really good camouflage as well, because that would have been one of the key advantages to internalizing the shell. Once the skin is on the outside, the skin can be used to camouflage against the background to make the animal hide from place to place from those nasty fish that are now everywhere in the ocean ruining things for all of the invertebrates. Not that I'm biased or anything at all against vertebrates. Vertebrates are great. Um, we're vertebrates. Uh, but the other things that make cephalopods so famous probably took a little longer to develop. Uh, we don't know if these early coleoids had ink. That We have found fossil ink sacs, but not until much later. So that could have taken a while to develop. Um, the intelligence doesn't fossilize, unfortunately. So who really knows? But it is interesting to speculate whether there were early battles of wits between the fish and the cephalopods. Um, we know that they did very well for a very long time because of the abundance of the fossils discovered and also because their lineages continued through some pretty drastic extinction events. When we think about mass extinctions, if we think about them at all, I know it's not necessarily a dinner table topic of conversation for every family, just mine, um, but the one we usually think of is the big one that ended the reign of the dinosaurs. But there were actually quite a few before that, and the biggest mass extinction in all of history is actually called the Great Dying. Scientists call it that. It's so cool. Uh, and this is not a picture of the Great Dying. This is a picture of the 1883 eruption of Krakatoa. But the reason that I like to use this picture to illustrate the Great Dying 
is that the mass extinction called the Great Dying, which happened long before the mass extinction at the end of the dinosaurs, was caused, we believe, by large amounts of volcanism. Lots and lots of volcanoes belching out their guts, this planetary case of indigestion just going completely haywire. And this is an example of what has happened in human history, human remembered times, 1883, when just one volcano belched out its guts. This eruption changed the global climate for years, this single eruption of one large volcano. And by comparison, the volcanoes that we believe caused the great dying erupted over this entire region of Siberia. Uh, so everything that's outlined here in gray and black is currently paved with basalt and other volcanic rocks. And that, combined with other lines of evidence, is what has led ge geologists to believe that this entire region, about 250 million years ago, was just exploding. Um, and it didn't do it all in one day. It didn't happen all in one year. Um, it probably happened over hundreds or thousands of years with brief spurts of extreme volcanism. But it definitely made the planetary climate go haywire for a long time. And a lot of animals went belly up, like this shark. Uh, I really like this drawing in particular because the aminoid is just kind of doodling along. I'm fine, everything's fine, no problems here. Um, which is not even true because a lot of aminoids did go extinct. 96% of all marine species went extinct. Uh, it was the pits. Uh, but some of the aminoids squeaked through and so did some of the nautiloids and so did some of the coleoids. Um, so that's another marker of success is the ability for even a few species to survive these extinctions. And then what happened after this mass extinction is they proliferated again. It did not take very long for cephalopods to take over the oceans again. They were no longer the biggest, toppest super predator. Um, now, they were being eaten by the biggest, toughest super predators, but they survived really well. This um, poster from Jurassic World, which is definitely true, is of a mosasaur eating a shark, I think, uh, which could have happened, but um, far more likely was this mosasaur eating an aminoid because we have found evidence, fossil evidence, of all of these large marine reptiles that evolved during this time chowing down on cephalopods of every kind. They were kind of the quick microwave dinners swimming around the oceans, and everything that could catch them and eat them did. And there were enough of these cephalopods to sustain these populations of giant marine reptiles, which we sometimes think of things like mosasaurs and ichthyosaurs as dinosaurs. They lived at the same time as dinosaurs. Um, if I cared about land animals, I could have pictures of dinosaurs here as well. But you can imagine that they're also proliferating at the same time. Um, these are technically marine reptiles and not dinosaurs, although they had a lot of things in common with dinosaurs. And you can see that this ichthyosaur is going after some of these little squid-like things. These are also coleoids that would eventually evolve into squid. And these animals were so abundant, the aminoids and coleoids and nautiloids of the time, that some predators overdid it a little bit. And this may be my favorite fossil of all time, because this is a fossil of a shark relative, a chondrichthian, so something that would have been closely related to a shark or a ray, uh, with its stomach so full of those thunderstones from ancient squid relatives that paleontologists think it may have just sank to the bottom and died <laughs> because it ate too many of them. So yeah, that was a problem. 
and they were doing great. Um, they, they survived this whole realm, this whole reign of the marine reptiles underwater by being super abundant, by proliferating, speciating, diversifying, and of course many of them did not get eaten and lived to have babies. And they went on to be what I think of as the real wonders of the Cretaceous. The Cretaceous period is known, oh I did, I did put some pictures of dinosaurs in here, look. Um, and then I put a big X over them. <laughs> uh, dinosaurs are really cool, you guys, but I'm just not here to talk about them. Um, I think that these were the real wonders of the Cretaceous. These are the things that ammonoids were doing with those coiled shells. It just got baroque by the end of the Cretaceous. I, we don't even know why, but these were pretty abundant animals. Uh, the colors are all interpretations of the artist who drew these pictures, just like most colors that you see drawn on dinosaurs are interpretations of artists because we don't have fossilized colors in almost every case. But the shapes of the shells are completely accurate. Like we have fossil shells in these super bizarre curly Q shapes and um, they were just doing something marvelous and we don't really know yet what it was. These are the shelled, the coiled guys, the unshelled or the internally shelled ones were also doing marvelous things during the Cretaceous. Uh, these are early squid, early octopuses, um, all of them doing some really cool stuff. Uh, some of it we don't even know about, but there are really cool fossils. And we have to remember too, this is the Cretaceous, sort of end Cretaceous Baroque extremes of cephalopods, but they've been around since way before dinosaurs. Let's go back to remembering those early straight-shelled monsters. They were living almost 500 million years ago, this big, not next to a gentleman in a suit, but uh, if we put a gentleman in a suit next to them, that's how big it would have been. And then, then by the end Cretaceous, we've got these coiled guys, large enough for you to climb into um, and have a cozy little tea party in there. So these were real long runners. They were around for almost 400 million years, evolving new forms, getting back to gigantism from small forms, um, just really dominating the seas in a lot of different ways. But all good things come to an end, as we know, and cephalopods met their fiery doom one very bad day in the late Cretaceous when a giant asteroid smacked into the planet and everybody went extinct. The dinosaurs went extinct, cephalopods went extinct. Wait, do we still have dinosaurs as birds? We do. Do we still have cephalopods? We do. So we, not everybody died. We have, we have calamari still. We have chickens still. Um, these are the survivors of this one really bad day in the Cretaceous, which led to a whole really bad sequence of years. Um, but this is still... I would say one of the great unsolved mysteries of paleontology, this murder mystery. We know now that there was an asteroid. We've found out all kinds of things about what that asteroid might have changed on the planet. And yet we don't know, in many cases, why certain animals survived when so many of their kin, so many of their family members went extinct. This, this. 
Um, so for the students in the audience looking to, to make a mark in the, the world of science, I feel like this is something where we could really use a lot more research. And there are a lot of wonderful researchers making progress on it, so you know, look for more stories to come. But in the meantime, I can tell you a little bit about the cephalopods. I don't know as much about the parrots, but our friend the squid, we do think that squid and their relatives may have survived the end Cretaceous extinction by hiding out in the deep sea. Uh, and that the animals that were not living in the deep sea at this time would have suffered the most as the surface waters um, got very hot and then got very acidic and food chains broke down as a lot of the smallest plants and the animals that depended on them were not getting enough sunlight or other nutrients to survive. The surface waters would have been a very difficult place to live. But if there were squid, who had already lost enough of that internal buoyant shell to live in the very deep sea, then they might have lived in a relatively unchanged environment and be, been able to squeak through. And squid are not the only survivors within the cephalopods. We also still have nautiloids today. And the reason that we think nautiloids survived is very different. Not that they were hiding out in an environment that didn't change, but that their individuals, particularly their eggs and their babies, were very able to survive sort of by waiting it out. Because nautiloids and nautiluses that live today tend to lay these large, resilient eggs that don't depend on lots of little tiny plants and animals and planktonic food webs because the mom nautiloids pack their eggs with these big yolky lunches for their babies. And by the time babies are done digesting the yolk, they're actually large enough to scavenge for food on their own. And so they, even though the planktonic food webs might have fallen apart in the wake of the extinction, these guys may have been able to survive by not depending on it. And I want to spend a little more time talking about nautiloids and what they've been doing ever since surviving that mass extinction. Um, because they really are some of the weirdest cephalopods. They're the only ones that we still have with an external shell. Uh, and so we've really relied on them to interpret the fossils of externally shelled cephalopods. How did it work? How did buoyancy work? How did swimming work? All of these open questions. And much of what we know about that is due to these animals that are still alive today, the pearly nautiluses or the chambered nautiluses. There are several species now, although every time I talk to a Nautilus researcher, the answer is different about how many species there are, so ask me tomorrow. But um, as, as we understand it, there are two major groups. There are these Nautiluses that have their, their outer shell is smooth, and then there are these other Nautiluses that grow a thick um, sort of fuzzy covering over it, which may serve as some kind of protection against parasites. It may serve as protection against predation. We're not really sure. Um, but all of these animals, follow that life history strategy that I described where they, they lay large eggs. They don't lay very many of them. The eggs take a long time to develop and to grow up. Nautiluses actually have to be almost 20 years old before they can reproduce. And so everything that they do is kind of in slow motion in terms of their life cycle and, and the reproduction. And unfortunately, um, this has led them to a very difficult position with humans that tend to move in fast forward. So I tend to think of the pearly nautilus as the reason why we can't have nice things. Because people love these shells. We love them so much that we can't leave them in the ocean. And we'd like to take them out of the ocean and turn them into jewelry and turn them into cups and sell them as souvenirs. And this is just a sampling of what you can buy online if you look for a nautilus shell. And until very recently, this trade was completely unregulated. 
There were no laws in neither internationally nor in any national waters about how many Nautiluses could be captured, how many shells could be taken, how many could be sold. Um, and so in many places, Nautiluses have been going extinct. There are certainly, there are certain islands in the Indo-Pacific where fishermen remember that their grandparents used to catch hundreds of Nautiluses and they can't even get one anymore. Um, so no species has yet gone extinct that we know of, but there are certainly populations that have been disappearing. And fortunately, um, certain groups of humans have moved quickly enough to enact some protections. And so just in 2017, at the meeting of CITES, which is the, um, it's the same treaty that protects rhinos and elephants, and um, they voted to also protect nautiluses. So there's now international protection in place for nautiluses. It doesn't mean that they can't be captured. It doesn't mean that they can't be sold. It just means that there's now an agreement to monitor the populations, to make calculations to see what can sustainably be harvested. And furthermore, um, even more recently, uh, just this year, the US government is considering listing them on the Endangered Species Act, which would also be a big benefit to nautiluses since a lot the US is one of the largest importers of Nautilus shells, and that would be regulated more if they were on the Endangered Species Act. So this is encouraging. Um, so maybe Nautiluses are in a story about why we can have nice things, maybe, if we're good. Um, but I thought that the whole story of Nautiluses, in part, is so interesting because it's dependent on this life cycle. Part of the reason that they can be overfished, that they are in such danger, is that they, rep they replace themselves so slowly. They don't grow at a rate that allows us to take a lot of them out of the ocean. And that's very different from the way almost all other cephalopods do it. So I'm going to go back now to the coleoids, which we'll remember is the group that has all of our famous cephalopod features. They've got tentacles. They've got camouflage. By now, they've definitely got ink and intelligence. And yet, it's none of these features. Yet again, it's these features that are so cool to us, but they are not necessarily the critical features determining the fate and the evolution of these animals. I would argue that one of the most critical features of coleoids is yet another trait that we don't think about that much, um, but that when we do, we describe it as a live fast, die young life strategy. Uh, unlike Nautiluses, most coleoids, like the young, the octopus that I kept when I was young, live for less than a year. They grow up like that, they make their babies, they die, they're out. Um, and they don't look like James Dean when they die, they look like this. Um, so I might expand the whole strategy uh, to live fast, die young, and leave a disintegrating corpse after your body destroys itself to make millions of babies. Um, and you don't need to feel too sad because this, this gentleman or lady has already spawned millions of babies and their bodies just fall apart after they do that. That's just what happens. Um, and those, not all species make millions of babies, some only make thousands, uh, but they are very, very prolific spawners. And this has led to a cephalopod boom in world oceans. So if you just consider the coleoids, the squid and octopus and cuttlefish, evidence has been gathered to suggest that they are doing extremely well. Uh, this is a figure from a paper that actually is called Global Proliferation of Cephalopods. It was published in 2016. And the, um, the blue lines here are showing for different groups of cephalopods a overall upwards trend in abundance 
from you know, the mid-1900s to where we are now in the early 2000s. I guess almost mid-early 2000, what would you call it? But uh, they seem to be doing very well in the global oceans on average. There are certain species that might be struggling, but this data gathered both from fishing vessels and from scientific surveys seems to be holding up and is quite robust. And a lot of it, the reason for it, seems to come down to that incredibly quick turnover that these animals have. It's not that they're so smart they're proliferating in the ocean. It's not that they're so good at camouflaging that they're hiding everywhere in plain sight. It's just that they grow up really fast and they make a lot of babies. And that means that they can reproduce. They can reproduce to fill new niches. They can move around from place to place. And they can adapt relatively quickly to a changing ocean. They're very flexible and adaptable animals as well. Along with this, they tend to be generalist predators. If they lose one prey species, they can often adapt to eat another. Um, and overall, they're pretty flexible, what we think of as weedy species, really. And uh, they, this success has been so marked that you can even buy a t-shirt commemorating it, <laughs> if you want to. Um, welcome, squid overlords. And, uh, on that note, I think I will just leave us with the joy of the cephalopods in our hearts. And thank you all for coming.